and welcome to another Solving History podcast. I'm Gemma. And I'm Emily. This time we take a look at a historical murder mystery and the Phantom of Texicana. For 10 weeks between February 22nd to May 3rd, 1946, Texarkana, a city located along the border between states of Texas and Arkansas in the US, was terrorised by the Phantom of Texarkana and their moonlight murders. In these 10 weeks, eight people were attacked and five of the victims were killed. The investigation was said to be full of mistakes and today the question still remains, who was the Phantom? I'm going to put a warning here as the murders are a little graphic and there is some descriptions of sexual assault. Of course it's dark, you wrote it. I know, it wasn't meant to be this dark, I'm sorry. I'm sorry now. Don't believe her. Okay, so tell us how the attack started. Okay, so the first attack took place on the evening of Friday, February the 22nd, 1946. A young couple, uh, Jimmy Hollis, age 25, and his date, Mary Janine Larry, who was 19, were returning from a date to the movies. They parked in a popular lover's lane, and here they were approached by a strange man wearing a mask who shone a flashlight into the car at the pair. The man had a gun and he demanded the two get out of their vehicle. The masked man ordered Jimmy to take off his pants, that's trousers to us Brits, and as Jimmy complied, he was struck in his head twice by a pistol, knocking him unconscious. Mary would later tell police that the man hit Jimmy so hard in his head that she believed he had been shot. The sound she heard was in fact Jimmy's skull fracturing. In a panic, she gave the stranger Jimmy's wallet, thinking that the masked man was there to rob them. However, that was not the case, and the masked stranger told Mary to get up and run. Terrified, she ran to a parked car that she saw up the road, only to find it empty, and the assailant quickly caught her. He knocked her down and sexually assaulted her with the barrel of the gun before taking off into the night, leaving behind the seriously injured couple. Fortunately, despite her assault, Mary was able to run to a nearby house and phone the police. I would like one pack of therapy ducks, please. You might need more than one. Oh, no. Okay, so what happens when the police arrive? So the police questioned Mary. She said the attacker was a black man wearing a white bag or pillowcase over his head with holes cut out for his eyes and mouth. But when Jimmy regained consciousness, he contradicted Mary's account, saying that the attacker was in fact a white man. The conflicting story sounded suspicious to the police and when they considered how brutal the attack was, they assumed that Mary was lying because she knew who the attacker was and said it was a black man to cover for them. It's also possible that the police didn't believe her because of her gender, instead concluding that she was embarrassed about the sexual assault with an object and lied. However, the couple were traumatised by the incident and had sustained head injuries. With that in mind, it's easy to see how identification could be difficult. Following the incident, Mary was so traumatised and upset that the police thought that she was lying, that she intended to move away from the Texarkana area. Can't blame her for that. Mm -mm. How accurate are eyewitness accounts, though? Um, Well, according to a 1988 survey of court prosecutors, an estimated 77,000 suspects are arrested each year based on eyewitness testimony in the US alone. In fact, studies have shown that mistaken eyewitness testimony accounts for about half of all wrongful convictions. Researchers at Ohio State University examined hundreds of wrongful convictions and determined that roughly 52% of the errors resulted from eyewitness mistakes. 
and legal scholar Edwin Borchard studies 65 cases of quote, er erroneous criminal convictions of innocent people. Mistaken eyewitness identification was responsible for approximately 45% of Borchard's case studies. So not very reliable. I know it's um, also higher if it's cross race as well. Yeah. And especially in this case, if the person was wearing a pillowcase on their head, then it could be mistaken why you'd think one person, like he could have been white or he might have been, a, you know, a different race underneath that, depending, I guess, on where you look at the person. Also, um, you'd think it'd be dark when they stuck away to Lover's Lane. So if the lights then shine into the car, their vision's going to be no good. Yeah. So why do witnesses get things so wrong? Do we know? Well, most scientists will agree that memories are formed when neurons form connections between brain cells. And James McIland, a Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh brain researcher, said, quote, each neuron represents a little bit of memory. So like a computer holds information in bytes of electronic coding, these bits of information are channeled from the eyes, ears and other sensors to various parts of the brain. In the brain, the connected neurons are stored in cerebral compartments that can hold as much as one quintillion separate memory bits. I'm no scientist, but I mean, that sounds like a lot. These storage compartments are consistently being rearranged by a part of the brain called the limbic system. And the limbic system tries to make sense out of our memories by adding new data and tossing out old data or confusing information. Elizabeth Lofthouse described this process by saying, quote, every time we recall an event, we must reconstruct the memory and with each recollection, the memory may be changed. Thus, our representation of the past takes on a living, shifting reality. And Dr. Marcel Meslian, professor of neurology and psychiatry at Northwestern University, observed that, quote, your brain may be rearranging something very vivid, but that doesn't prove that what you recreate was true. It's amazing what the mind can do. There was a, a documentary on TV a few years ago where they had like a group of people and they like showed them, they'd like Photoshop shot to the people into a picture of the people in hot air balloons. Mm -hmm. I think it was and showed that by being told that they'd been in the hot balloon hot air balloon enough their memory they suddenly had a memory of of it yeah because this is where like some police confessions get thrown out because it, it doesn't take it takes less than you would think to put a memory in somebody's head yeah especially in a trauma-based incident yeah yeah, definitely. Because your adrenaline's going, they were injured. It's it's a mess. Yeah. Is that the only attack, though? No. Uh, so a month following Jimmy and Mary's close call, the second attack occurred. On March the 24th, a motorist spotted a car with two occupants parked in a lover's lane near US Highway 67 West and thought the couple in the car had slept there overnight. So when the Good Samaritan got close to the car, probably to wake them up and move them on, he noticed that they weren't sleeping, but were in fact dead. Police were called, and 
it was discovered that the man was Richard L. Griffin, who was aged 29, and he'd been shot twice in the car, and his girlfriend, Polly Ann Moore, who was 17, was found shot in the back seat. Outside the car, the police found a blanket covered in blood and determined that Polly Ann had been killed on the blanket and then placed in the back seat of the vehicle. Just gloss over that age gap. It's a big age gap. Also 17, very young. Mm-hmm. Did the police find anything that might lead them to the perpetrator? They did. Unlike the first attack, they actually found some evidence at this scene and it was a single bullet casing that had been left behind. Texas Rangers and the FBI analysed the bullet and determined that it was likely fired from a 32 Colt automatic pistol. Strangely, the two victims were laid to rest before a pathologist could examine them. I mean, that's not standard protocol for police investigations. And rumours spread around the time stated that Polly Ann was not sexually assaulted. But then other rumours were spread that she had been sexually assaulted. And to this day, the truth about why the two were not autopsied and if Polly Ann was a victim of sexual assault before her death remained unknown. Following this attack, in the March, 27, March 27th edition of Texarkana Gazette, an announcement was made that told readers, you can help solve murders. It read, quote, Sheriff Bill Presley and his deputies have a difficult task ahead of them as they attempt to solve the shocking double murder discovered Sunday morning. Texarkana residents can help in this investigation and at the same time, if they are not careful, they can hinder the investigation and cause the officers to spend many hours following blind trails. Persons who have information which might furnish a, furnish a clue to the identity of the slayer or slayers or which might indicate a motive for the crime should not divulge such information on street corners or at cold drink stands but should immediately make it available to the officers. Do not spread rumours regardless of how much basis for fact there is in them. Do not say, I heard or they say, because the chances are that the person listening will repeat your information and enlarge upon it. Before long, the story grows to such proportions as to, necess- to, as to necessitate a detailed investigation by the officers, therefore, thereby perhaps pulling from them, thereby perhaps pulling them off the true trail and sending them up a blind alley. Stick to the facts you know of your own personal knowledge and relay those facts as quickly as possible to the officers. Said the police force that let two victims be buried without autopsy. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, obviously, there were some issues if they having to put that out in the newspaper that obviously people were talking about it. They were, you know not used to that kind of violence clearly is it a big place in 1940 uh you're looking at about eleven thousand people that's not a lot no that's like your average uni campus yeah when you add everyone together yes it wasn't huge no no wonder the police were worried about rumors yeah Especially in the kind of place where people, you don't have to know somebody in and out, but you kind of know somebody who knows somebody. Yeah. Maybe that's why there wasn't autopsies on those two. Well, yeah, I guess it depends what families that they were connected to. Yeah. And it might have looked a bit odd if there'd been sexual activity on somebody so young when she was out with somebody. Especially since she was 17. Yeah. 
not saying he deserved to get murdered or anything like that, just saying it's a little bit suspicious. Mm. Especially as it's the second. Like, if it was the only murder, maybe they, you know, would have put it down to a familiar dispute or something. But the fact it was the second one, Mm. you'd think they'd be like, hmm, we should investigate everything. Don't be silly. (sighs) Okay, please tell me that's the last pack. Nope. Three weeks later, in the early hours of April the 14th, 1946, the phantom struck again. Paul Martin, who was 17, had picked up his girlfriend Betty Jo Booker, who was 15, from a Veterans of Foreign Wars Club, where she was a member of the evening's musical entertainment. Betty Jo's mum grew concerned when her daughter didn't stop by the house to drop off her saxophone before spending time with her boyfriend. Her mother then called round the couple's friends, but no one had seen them. Police were called and a search was started. Paul's body was discovered at around 6.30am, just off the north side just off the side of North Park Road. He's been shot four times, once through his nose, once through the back of the neck, and once through the right hand, and once through the ribs. Betty Jo's body was discovered much later at approximately 11.30am, almost two miles, that's 3.2 kilometres, away from her boyfriend. And she was found behind a tree with two gunshot wounds, one in the face and then another through the chest. Paul's car was then found an additional three miles, that's almost five kilometres, from Betty Jo's remains with the keys in the ignition. The police were not able to determine who was murdered first, but like the murders of Richard L. Griffin and Polly Ann Moore, a bullet casing indicated that a 32, a 32 Colt automatic pistol was the murder weapon. Seems like there's like a bit of an escalation in mm-hmm. each... Uh each attack yeah the kind of the attacker is getting more confident yeah and shooting through the face it's not like that's like obliterating yeah someone because they say that knife attacks are extremely personal because you have to be so close to them whereas a gun you don't have to be that close to them but there was a up st- in someone's face and do it it's very personal there was a statistic on one of those crime programs a, a little while ago that something like 30 or 40 percent more people would take a chance against a gun than a knife yeah it's crazy isn't it yeah but i guess knives can do a lot of damage up close and pretty, personal pretty sure a bullet could too yeah but i guess you know you probably think that if someone was using a gun they wouldn't be that close maybe so were there any more attacks? There was one final attack that occurred on May the 3rd, 1946, and it was very different to the previous attacks. Okay, how so? So instead of a secluded lover's lane, the fourth victim, Virgil Starks, who was 37, was shot twice in the back of his head through a window whilst he read a newspaper. When his wife, Katie Starks, who was 36, heard glass breaking, she rushed to see what had happened. Having discovered her husband's corpse, she ran to the fo- to phone the police and came face to face with the killer. She was shot twice in her face, again through the same window, but she managed to escape to her neighbour's home across the street and was able to tell the neighbours her husband was dead before she herself lost consciousness. Katie survived her injuries and recovered, but when police questioned her after emergency surgery, she couldn't tell investigators who had attacked her 
and her husband because they never saw who shot them from outside their home. All that was left behind at the scene was a black and red flashlight that no one could identify. An important note here, though, that by November 1948, authorities no longer considered the Starks' murder and assault connected with the other double murders, and another person was eventually arrested and convicted. At the time, though, this murder marked the height of hysteria in Texarkana. You can understand why people were on edge. 100%. But, I mean, what were the police doing? Did they have any strong leads? I mean, they were doing all that they could in order to find this phantom. And leading investigator, Texas Ranger Manuel Trezas Gonzalez, uh, realised the attacks took place every three weeks and attempted to set a trap for the killer. Two undercover officers with mannequins posted teenagers and parked in lovers' lanes. Despite their attempts, police had no luck. The phantom never struck again following the fourth attack. In That was, in fact, one of the phantom's attacks. However, residents in Texarkana began buying guns, guard dogs and blinds for their windows. Curfews were set up and people locked their doors for the first time. While no one was ever caught for the murders, in an attempt to solve them, the police brought over 400 suspects in for questioning, but every single one of them was cleared. But there were two men that were considered people of interest. Okay, who were the two men? So the first possible phantom of Texarkana Moonlight murderer was 18-year-old H.B. Tennyson. So Tennyson committed suicide in 1948, leaving behind a suicide note confessing being responsible for the Martin Brooker and the Starks murders. Tennyson was in the same school band as Brooker, but the two weren't friends. However, a friend of Tennyson came forward to police telling them that his friend did not kill anyone. They were playing cards at home when they heard the news reporting on the murders. The second possible phantom um, was a notorious car thief named Uel Swinney, who was 29. Police discovered that on the night of every attack, a car was reported stolen and later found abandoned by the thief. Swinney's wife was seen driving a stolen car and the husband and wife were arrested. The wife confessed that her husband was the killer, but her story was inconsistent, changing details each time she was subjected to questioning. She did mention a location where some of Martin and Brooker's belongings were left by Swinney, but other than her confession, there was nothing solid to tie him to the murders and police determined that the wife was an unreliable witness and one that couldn't legally testify against her husband in a trial anyway. Um, but UL Swinney was sentenced to prison for his habitual grand theft auto charges, where he would die almost 50 years later in 1994. Many found it suspicious that he and his wife got married in the days before they were arrested. Tennyson, the guy who killed him, obviously had issues. Yeah. It's very easy to kind of discard him. Yeah, especially because the person was straight away there with an alibi. Yeah. But Swinney, that's an odd one. Like, that is a big step up from stealing cars to murdering and raping. Yeah. It does seem like a car was stolen every single time an attack happened. Does. But it still seems like surely there would have been other hints. Mm. 
Yeah. I mean, marrying someone before you get arrested kind of makes sense because then you can't be called upon to be a yeah. witness, you know. So I guess that protects him. Maybe that was just to protect him from stealing cars. Maybe. Odd. It's odd that they just stopped. Like somebody who's got that much rage and anger and who's gotten away with it. Yeah. Like it's odd that it just completely stopped. Killers aren't really known for having a couple of goes and then just stopping. No. One of my wild theories that no one mentioned, but one that I thought of whilst I was reading it, was the potential that the fourth attack actually killed the Phantom and that it was one of the family members who perhaps found out and that's why it was so different. Maybe. But why kill the wife? Or try to. Yeah, I guess in case they thought that she'd seen them. I mean, I was was thinking, is it a police officer? Mm. Because... It sounds like, A, they avoided the sting. B, the flat shining a torch in people's faces when they're in the car is very much what a a police officer would do. Yeah. There's very little evidence. Anyway, just speculation. Lots of speculation. That's all we kind of have for this. Yeah. How has the town recovered? So... The murders have kind of become a part of the morbid history of the area. And each year around Halloween, the 1976 film, the town that dreaded sundown, which is based on the murders, is shown in a local park as the finale of the annual Movies in the Park event hosted by the Texarkana Department of Parks and Recreation. So it's kind of like a weird, morbid local interest. I imagine the victims' families are okay with that. Yeah. I know I wouldn't be. No. Such an odd reaction to things. It is. I mean, we say that like there aren't Jack Ripper tours around London. Well, yeah, exactly. I guess it's one way of keeping the victims alive. Maybe. To constantly talk about them. It's a very morbid way of looking at it, though. Like, taking the Jack the Ripper example, we tend to focus on the killer. Especially if they've got a snazzy nickname like the Phantom mm. and and Jack the Ripper and, and you know, the Boston Strangler. Yeah. And they almost become cult celebrities. Yeah. And yet very few people can name the victims. Yeah, exactly. It's a weird thing that we as human beings do. Okay, so my questions are, do you think that the fourth attack was linked to the Phantom or just a completely other random attack that just happened at the same time? And do you think that the murderer could have been one of the suspects that was named? Those are very good questions. I'm going with no and no. In all seriousness, there's a lot a lot of big questions and missing bits of fact. Mm-hmm. And obviously, I think 1946, forensic gathering of data and evidence was in no way as advanced as it is today yeah definitely so you know unless someone finds a hidden note that sets out exactly who the killer was we may never know this is the last solving history for 2022 thank you for listening all year we'll be back in 2023 with more cases 
and mysteries for you to solve, starting with the Lizzie Borden case in January, which I'm very excited about. Until then, have a wonderful Christmas and New Year, and make sure to take care of yourselves and each other.